The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Well, good morning again, church. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do. Open with me to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 16. I've titled this morning's message, Still Empty. Still Empty. The grave is still empty. And I wonder if if we have the task of choosing an event and making that event to be saying this event is the most important event in all of history. This is the most important event that's ever happened. What event might we choose? I mean, there are, there are a lot to choose from, are there not? Um, I thought about that this week, and I thought about um, how when mankind learned to harness fire and use fire. It's a little bit before my time when that happened, but nevertheless, uh, mankind learned to harness fire. And, uh, and of course, fire helps mankind in, in cold, cold climates. It helps people cook food. Fire also helps with, uh, you know, for protection from wild animals. And so harnessing fire was a very, very important event in the history of mankind. Um, or imagine what life was like before the wheel was invented. Um, archaeologists believe that the wheel was invented some five or 6,000 years ago in what is now today modern-day Iraq. Um, and I mean, you know, wow, life sure is easier with a wheel, right? I mean, I was doing some yard work yesterday with my wheelbarrow, and I'm, I'm grateful uh, for whoever decided to come up with the wheel. What a, what a great invention that was. But I think for me, uh, the most important event is not like thousands of years ago like that. It probably happened about 100 years ago, or to be specific, maybe 1928 uh, was the most important event uh, or invention. The, this invention, by the way, is shaped like a wheel. Um, it's when a man named Harry Burnett Reese decided to put peanut butter and chocolate together into a little cup. I mean, that, that, was, that was pretty cool. That was like super up there in, in, my, in my book. That's pretty important, right? Um, in, in all seriousness, uh, some of the things that we think of when we think of these important events, they are beyond, beyond doubt, they're, they're important. Uh, some of these things have radically changed the way we live our lives, including the peanut butter cup. Uh, but none of them are the most important events in all of history. The most important event in history really did happen about 2,000 years ago in a town in the Middle East named Jerusalem when a man named Jesus came out of the grave. This event was discovered by some women who were making their way to the grave. The women expected to find his body in the grave. But to their surprise, when they arrived, they were greeted by an angel instead of Jesus. And the person they were seeking wasn't dead, but he was alive. The single most important event in the history of the universe was and is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And whether you're a Christian or not, it is, I mean, we measure time based on the life of Jesus. So we're in the year 2022. How did we get to 2022? Well, from the life of Jesus is how we get to that time. And so look with me now in Mark 
chapter 16. If you're new to reading a Bible, the larger number, that is the chapter number, the smaller numbers there are the verse numbers. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8. And if you're there with me, say Amen. All right. Just a further note, by the way, if those of you who are familiar with my preaching, you know, keep your Bibles open. I'll be referring back and forth to it over and over again through the message. But let me read the text. When the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you now for these few moments that we have now to reflect and to think about your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be aware that Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that we would know that Your Word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And so, Lord, use Your Word now to mold us and shape us into the men and women You would have us be. Lord, as we celebrate today the empty tomb, Lord, help us to understand and grasp the significance of that in each of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as you know, I like to give you a central idea, and I've already mentioned it one time, but here's the central idea once again. The bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave is the most important event in the history of the world. The bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave is the most important event in the history of the world. As we walk through the text, I want to make three points this morning. Uh, Here's the outline. Low expectations, shock and awe, and fulfilling the mission. All right? Low expectations, shock and all, fulfilling the mission. First, let's look at some low expectations. Our story starts on the Sabbath, with the Sabbath just ending. Sabbath begins in the Jewish calendar on Friday evening at sundown, and it continues until Saturday evening at sundown. And here in our passage, we're introduced to three women. We have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, We're probably familiar with Mary Magdalene. We've heard her name before. This second Mary, however, the mother of James. Uh, Some believe that this is the mother of Jesus. And while it's possible that she's the mother of Jesus, I don't believe it's likely. Um, If this were really the mother of Jesus, I don't think Mark would have introduced her as Mary, the mother of James. Um, She would have had far more cachet, if you will, if he just said, this is Mary, this is Jesus' mother. Um, Although Jesus does have a half-brother named James. We don't know much about Salome either. From what we do know, she's probably the mother of James and John. Those are two of Jesus' disciples. Uh, They're the ones that are also known as the sons of thunder. Um, 
But this isn't the first time in Mark's Gospel when these women are mentioned. A few verses earlier, back in chapter 15 and verse 40, these three women are at the site of the crucifixion. That's where they make their first appearance. And from those verses, we learn that they are followers of Jesus. These women are disciples of Jesus. Now, before I get too far along in the story, let me say a word or two of you, uh, a word or two to each of you who might be skeptical about the whole resurrection thing. I mean, after all, people don't generally get up from the dead, right? Dead people normally stay dead. And so it's okay to be skeptical. And if you are skeptical, let me say this first. Thank you for being here today, despite your skepticism. I'm glad you're here. You're welcome here. But second, let me speak a word about why I believe the resurrection account in Mark's Gospel is absolutely authentic. We're told here that the first witnesses, the first people to the scene of the empty tomb are women. Now, according to our modern sensibilities, that might not strike us as odd at all. But in an ancient Near Eastern culture, women were not considered reliable witnesses. In fact, their testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law. Josephus, who is an ancient first century Jewish historian, said that the witness of even multiple women could not be accepted, quote, and I'm quoting Josephus here, because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Celsus, another 2nd century critic of Christianity, mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as an alleged witness to the resurrection. He referred to her as, quote, hysterical female deluded by sorcery, unquote. Now that gives us a little taste, if you will, of, of the testimony of women in the 1st century. And so if, if, as some people claim that Jesus' followers were simply making up this story of a resurrection because they wanted people to believe it, there is no way, there is no way that they would have chosen women to be the first witnesses of the empty tomb. No way they would have done that. It wouldn't have been a believable story. If they wanted it to be a believable story, they would have had men be there, and prominent men at that. There's only one reason why all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels give women as the primary first witnesses. There's only one reason that can be. And that's because that's the way it happened, friends. That God in His providence used these blessed women to be the witnesses to the greatest event in history. And so if you're a skeptic, again, thank you for being here. But I want you to know there's zero chance that this is a made-up story. Now, we might think of other ways that we want to discount the story and explain away the resurrection, but there's zero chance that the disciples are making this up. Okay? And back to our text. At the end of verse 1, Mark tells us the women had purchased spices to anoint the body of Jesus. And again, this might sound a bit strange to us. It's, it's an ancient practice. It's something that they did back in the first century. Let me, let me tell you why they did that. In the ancient Near Eastern world, when someone you loved died, one of the things you did was to go and cover the dead body of your loved one with spices and perfumes so that you could cover up the stench of their decaying flesh. Now, that seems like a rather morbid and maybe even a gross thought in our modern age, but that's exactly what the women were doing. But... Here we learn something important, friends. Notice this. They had already purchased the spices. 
And they have the spices with them as they're on their way to the tomb. They were expecting to find a dead body in the tomb. They were operating under the assumption that Jesus was dead. This is why I titled this first point, Low Expectations. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They were expecting to find a body there. They weren't hallucinating as some claim. Some say, well, they were just so enthralled that they knew, this, they knew a resurrection was going to happen that they hallucinated the fact that a resurrection happened. But they're making their way to the grave with spices. They're not anticipating a resurrection. And as they make their way to the grave, look with me at verse 3. They're talking to one another and they say to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Now that raises for us again another question. How did they know where the tomb was? Again, that's another common objection. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. How did they know where it was? Well, they knew where it was because they were there when He was buried. Look with me, if you will, just back up into chapter 15, right at the end of chapter 15. Right, the last verse of chapter 15, verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where He was laid. And so, if you're, if you're a scorekeeper, the text we're looking at this morning has debunked three myths that skeptics put forward about the resurrection. First, some skeptics say the disciples, they simply made up the story. Again, zero chance of that happening if the first witnesses are going to be women. That's just something you would not do. Second, some skeptics say the disciples were hallucinating. They were, again, convinced that this resurrection was going to happen, and so they just thought... They saw Jesus. But the women are showing up with spices not because they're expecting a resurrection, because they're expecting to find a dead body. So there's no hallucination. And third, some skeptics say that the women went to the wrong tomb. When we know from chapter 15 at least two of these same women were there when Jesus was buried. They knew exactly where the tomb was. Truth be told, these women had low expectations. And not just the women, by the way. The women are the ones mentioned here in our text. But the men, equally, the, the male disciples had equally low expectations. But these women, they knew where the grave was. They were expecting to anoint His dead body with spices. And that brings us now to our second point this morning. Shock and awe. It's in verses 4-6. through six. Shock and awe. Try to put yourself in the shoes of these women. You're on your way to care for the body of someone you love deeply and while you're walking there you're talking with one another about how you're actually going to get to the body because you know, you've seen it, the, the, the grave is, is, or the tomb is sealed with a large stone, much larger than they would be able to move by themselves. And so now the women, they make that last turn, if you will, they're, they're getting ready to walk and they look and the stone's not there. The stone has been moved away been rolled away. And then notice the language here at the end of verse 4. Mark specifically tells us that it was a very large stone. Why do you suppose Mark tells us it was a very large stone? It's an interesting feature right there. I think I know why Mark uses that language. I, I think Mark tells us it was a large stone because Mark is getting his information from eyewitnesses. So when an eyewitness recalls an event, it's very rare that the eyewitness won't have some like very specific details about an event. 
Now, different eyewitnesses may have different specific details, but eyewitnesses have specific details. Think about when you, when you witness an automobile accident. You can often describe the color of the car, or maybe you, still in your ears you hear the, the screeching of the tires, um, and you hear the metal and the glass crashing as they impact one another. In your mind's eye, you can still see those cars colliding. You see it all happening because you're an eyewitness. Here, Mark is telling us that the stone was very large. Why is he doing that? Because he's getting his information from eyewitnesses. This isn't a made-up story. Then in verse 5, the women, they begin to enter into the tomb and they see this young man, Mark describes him, a young man, quote, sitting on the right side. Friends, details matter. Why, again, is he sitting on the right side? Why isn't he just sitting? Or why isn't it just they saw a young man? Because they're getting this information from eyewitnesses. There he is. He's sitting. He's sitting on the right side. He's wearing a robe. And the women are alarmed. To say that they might be experiencing a bit of, a bit of shock and awe um, at this point is an understatement. Now, we might read the text, by the way, and, and say, you know, who is this young man? Mark doesn't tell us anything that this man is an angel. And certainly he doesn't. He doesn't tell us that they, he's an angel. But we know that this man is an angel. There are at least four good reasons to believe this is an angel. I'll give you from the, from the least important reason to the most important reason. Uh, first, um, the young man is sitting. You might think, what's the big deal about sitting? Well, in a first century context, if, if I'm the teacher, I'm not standing up here in front of you. I'm sitting before you because sitting is a place of authority. The teacher would sit in an ancient Near Eastern world and then he would begin teaching from a place of authority. Second, he's wearing white. Now again, white is not, it's not like, well, white is the color of angels and that's only angels. And that's not what's happening. But this is not an ordinary white is my point. The women are in a darkened tomb. And they can tell the young man is wearing white. And not only white, in a parallel account in Matthew's Gospel, this, his clothing is described as, quote, like lightning. And his clothing white as snow. This is a supernatural kind of white. This is not, you know, I don't care what kind of detergent you use in your house, you're not going to get your clothes this white. Third, the women are frightened by this young man. I've shared this with you before. I can't think of a single occurrence in the Bible where... A human being meets an angel and the human being isn't frightened. This is the normal occurrence to meeting an angel. But the fourth and the most definitive reason we know this is an angel is the parallel account of this in Matthew's Gospel. It tells us this man is an angel. That's, that's who they're meeting. And so the women, they meet this angel and they're frightened. But notice what the angel says to them. In verse 6, I'm only going to speak about verse 6 right now in this point. We'll talk about verse 7 when I get to point uh, 3. But the angel says this to the women, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. I watched a movie the other day about a 911 operator. And... Um, I'm not a 911 operator. I've never been a 911 operator. But I, I do know that people in emergency situations will often make calls to 911. And in an emergency situation, people can sometimes be a bit frenzied or disoriented. And so one of the jobs of a 911 operator is to calm the caller down a bit uh, 
so that the so that the caller can give the information that's needed. Because if the caller isn't thinking straight, then the operator can't dispatch the proper help uh, to help the person. Well, within our text here today, the women are frightened, and understandably so. They're expecting to find the dead body of someone they love. Instead, they're confronted by an angel. And so just like a good 911 operator, the angel tries to calm their fears. He says, the first thing he says to women, don't be alarmed. Then the angel brings the temperature down, if you will, even a little bit further. And he tells the women, you're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. What's he doing there? He's saying, you're in the right place. You haven't gone the right You're seeking Jesus. I know that's why you're here. So again, taking care of some common myths related to the crucifixion. The angel says that Jesus was crucified. And friends, as I, as I said in our Good Friday service, the Romans were experts at this. They were experts at crucifixion. They didn't crucify people until they passed out. As, as some, some say Jesus was just, you know, He passed out on the cross and then when they put Him in the cool of the tomb, He, he came back to life in the cool of the tomb. That's not what Roman soldiers did. When you were crucified, it means that you were killed. Crucifixion was a death sentence. So when the angel says Jesus was crucified, he's saying simply Jesus was put to death. It's not just that Jesus had nails put through His flesh. Jesus was put to death. And then the angel says what are perhaps the three most beautiful words in all of the Bible. The angel tells the women, He has risen. I'll say more about why those words are so important in a moment. But let that just sink in. He has risen. Jesus is no longer dead. He's risen. The grave, beloved, is still empty. That's point number two. Shock and all. Let's turn our attention now to the final point. I've titled, Fulfilling the Mission. Fulfilling the Mission. We pick, we pick up again the angel's words in verse 7. The angel says to the women, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so the angel here, he gives the women, this is, these are, this is your mission. These are your marching orders. Go and tell the other disciples that Jesus is going to appear before them in Galilee. I mean, it's, Pretty straightforward directions, right? This is, this is not something you look at and go, well, you know, you've given me too many things to do. I'm not going to remember the order of them. Go tell the disciples that He's going to appear in Galilee. But just as soon as the angel finishes telling the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee, we read these words. Look with me in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, And they, talking about the women, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now that first part of the verse, frankly, is an understandable response, right? They, they've just seen an angel. You know, they were expecting to see Jesus' dead body. They see an angel instead. And so uh, they do what any one of us would have done. They, they run away from the tomb in shock and all. Again, you know, if we had been there, we, we would have been probably running with them. But then come these interesting words. Mark tells us 
that they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What are we to make of that? What are we to make of their apparent total silence? Total silence. I mean, after all, the angel had given them simple instructions, right? Go and tell the other disciples. And now, are, are we to understand that the, the women said, I'm not doing that. And they, they just mums the word. These are, these are the first human witnesses to the greatest event in the history of the universe, and now they're just silent? It doesn't seem to make sense. Especially, again, since the angel had given very simple directions, what are we to make of that? And I would be honest with you, more than one commentator is ready to throw the women right under the bus for their reaction or their apparent reaction. One commentator says of these women, he says this, and he says, verse 8 clearly implies a response of fear that inhibits faith. Another commentator writes, quote, The women fled from the tomb just as the disciples fled from the arrest, trial, and crucifixion. They were seized with trembling, bewilderment, and fear. Worst of all, they told no one what they had heard and seen. In the end, they seemed to have failed just as much as the male disciples. Now, I find that women are capable of failing just as much as men. I don't... But my apologies to these learned commentators. I don't believe that's what's happening here. I think they're misreading the text, and I'm not the only one who thinks they're misreading the text. Two other commentators, I believe, get it right. One writes, quote, And they told, nothing, they told no one anything can be understood either positively or negatively. It can mean that the women did not allow themselves to be distracted from their commission to tell the, the disciples the angelic message. And beloved, I think that's exactly what's happening here. These women have been given the greatest news in the history of the world. And this wasn't something that they could contain. So what Mark is telling us here is this, that they didn't stop on the way to chit-chat with everybody on their way, that they said nothing to anyone until they were able to tell the disciples what they were meant to tell the disciples. One other commentator writes this. He says, quote, They needed time to process this experience and collect their thoughts. So they said nothing. Also, they were afraid. Who would believe them? Jewish law, which was very male-dominated, discounted the witnesses, the witness of women. Yet, good news cannot be contained. After they had composed themselves, they did a lot of talking. Beloved, when we truly lay hold of the message of the resurrection, when we really grasp that message, we cannot help but tell others about it. I'm going to draw this message to a close with a so what question. I mean, so, so what? So, so what if some man who lived 2,000 years ago died on a cross, he was crucified, was, was put in a grave, and then three days later he rose from the grave? What's, what's the big deal? What's the importance there? How does that affect me today in the year 2022? And that's a fair question to ask. It really is. How, how do these ancient events affect me today? So let me answer that question very carefully. First, we all need to understand this. We, we are not our own. You know, many of us, we live our lives as, we're, as if we're not accountable to anybody. We, we think that we're the masters of our own universe. But that's not true. We've all been created with a purpose. All of us. 
every human being on the planet, we're created in the image of God so that we might enter into a relationship with God. It's what we've been made for. That famous saint named Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And so we've been created with this purpose to enter into a relationship with a holy and righteous God. It's true of me. It's true of you. It's true of your loved ones, your friends, your, everyone you know. It's true. And in the beginning of time, if we were to rewind, go all the way back to Adam and Eve, there was a very brief period of time in creation when, when everything was as it should have been. When Adam and Eve had fellowship with God and they walked with God and they listened to God. But it didn't take long for Adam and Eve to think that they knew better than God. They thought they could distinguish on their own what was good and what was evil. And they ultimately chose wrong. And, as, and in their choosing of wrong, they, sin entered the world. But sin is not a problem just for Adam and Eve. Sin is a problem for you and me as well. Because just as Adam and Eve thought that they knew better than God, we do the same thing. But let's be honest with ourselves. We, we probably don't have to go back more than 24 hours most of us, we can probably go back to the time we got up this morning. We can think about things that we've already done today where we've chosen to rebel against God. Maybe we've chosen to lie when God tells us to be truth-tellers. Maybe we've chosen to lust even though God tells us to be pure in heart. Maybe we've chosen pride even though God has told us to be humble. Or we've chosen selfishness when God tells us to be selfless. So a perfectly holy and righteous God in love tells us how we should live and yet what do we do? We kind of we thumb our nose at God. We all do that. We've chosen to sit on the throne of our lives instead of God sitting on that throne. And the Bible tells us that for our sin we deserve to be punished. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 the wages of sin is death. What, we, what we've earned. If you're a wage earner, what, what you've earned for your sin is death. And that's just bad news, isn't it? So how can then a sinful people like you and me, people who deserve death, how can we have a relationship with a holy and righteous God? Is it possible maybe God can just give us a pass? You know, just like, yeah, I know you're having a bad day there, Brian. I'm, I'm going to give you a pass on this. And, it's, and everything's going to be... Good, but let's be honest, He's going to have to give us more than just one pass, right? He's going to have to give us a lot of passes. And so, and if He started giving passes like that, He really wouldn't be a righteous judge anymore. He would just be, you know, I feel like giving this person a pass and maybe not this other person, I'm not going to give a pass. And so God has to judge sin. He judges my sin and He judges your sin. But there was one man who never sinned. There was one man who never did anything wrong. This man, did, he didn't need a pass, if you will, from God. And we've already mentioned his name. His name was Jesus. He lived a perfect life, sinless in every way. He had never earned death. And so maybe, just maybe, maybe he can pay the price that we owe. Maybe he could die in our place. Maybe by some amazing act of mercy and grace, He could do that for us. 
And that's exactly what he did. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate Easter. That on that Friday, that good Friday, that he was paying the penalty for our sins. That's why we call it Good Friday. But it leaves one thing left undone. You see, if Jesus had remained in the grave, if, if, it, if the story ended on Good Friday, then we would all still be in our sins. If, if the grave weren't still empty, then we could say with certainty that His death didn't accomplish what He meant for it to accomplish. But praise God, beloved, that His body is not in the grave. Praise God that the tomb is empty. Because, and because the tomb is empty, Jesus has defeated death and He's defeated sin. He's the only one who's done that. You and I can't defeat death. We can't defeat sin. But if we believe in Him and if we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, then Jesus will act as our righteousness. And through His death, burial, and resurrection, He will take care of our sin. And so, let me just ask you this question here today. Have, have you ever trusted in Jesus to take care of your sin burden? Have you ever confessed before God that you need a Savior. That you can't, you can't handle your own sin because Jesus can. And you just need to trust Him today. If you haven't done that, I would encourage you, I would invite you to do that today. If you have questions about that, about what, what that means, please come. You're welcome to talk to me. You're probably sitting next to somebody right now that would love to talk to you about that question. But don't leave here today. If you've never trusted in Jesus, don't leave here today without at least inquiring about what does that mean to trust in Jesus so that you might have eternal life. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much. We thank You that You loved us, that You demonstrated Your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, You sent Your Son Jesus to die on the cross for us that we might have life through Him. Oh, Father, thank You for Easter. Thank You for the empty tomb. Thank You for raising Your Son from the dead to defeat Satan, to defeat sin, and to defeat death forever. Lord, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, help us to be encouraged today by what You've done for us. But for those who are here today who have, perhaps they've never trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that You would convict them. That You would give them faith to believe today. That they could inherit eternal life today through Your Son, Jesus. Lord, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read one passage of Scripture um, as we close. It's from Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you and have a wonderful, wonderful Easter. And again, I'm here to talk to you if you have any questions. God bless you. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.